I like to go back once more to purification of virtue because it is basically connected and concerned with the whole of the purification system that we are engaged in when we not only when we meditate but when we want to be on a spiritual journey it can actually encompass all of it until we come to certain insights which we have already talked about to some degree in the purification of virtue the Buddha mentioned ten particular virtues which we need to cultivate and engage in them so that our habit-prone makeup goes in that direction without effort. Now in the beginning we will obviously have to make an effort to get to um, use these capacities that we have. But later on when we have done it, it is a habit, it becomes our second nature. And as it becomes our second nature, it will eventually become our first nature, the way we actually are. And because we have within us this mistaken view of how things are, the more we change our natural way of acting and reacting, the more we also change that mistaken view. It goes hand in hand. The mistaken view of self that we have is not something that we think up every day. We don't have to get up in the morning and now start thinking, oh yes, that's me getting up. We know it's me getting up. There's no need to intellectualize it. We have absolutely no doubt about it. We don't even mention it. We just react to it. When it's either not supported or when we think it is being supported. So we react to it quite naturally. Now the more we change our nature, the more we change our reactions also. And that mistaken view becomes less and less embedded until eventually we can uproot it because it is so shallowly embedded then, its roots are, have become so shallow that it doesn't have any nourishment anymore. So it isn't actually an intellectual process, even though it might sound like that because we are presently talking about it. There's no other way to inform anyone. It's not only information until we act upon that information. And when we act upon that information, then it becomes a skill and the skill becomes a habit. And that skill together with the habit, changes us.
The first one of these ten is, is named by the Buddha as generosity. Now the first one of lists that he gives is usually the one that we can enter into that particular practice. Now with mindfulness, the first one is the body. That doesn't mean the other three are not important. On the contrary, they are equally important. But if we do not start with mindfulness on the body, which is in the meditative process, breath and walking meditation, we don't have an entry. So here, the best entry to these virtues is generosity. Now the reason it is such an important passport to not only purification but also to changing our nature is because it demands of us that we let go of the ego concentration, the demands at the time of generosity that we are not concerned with ourselves, but with others. Now, naturally, that can be short-lived, but at least it's happening. So if we then recognize the value of what we're doing, in the first instance, because of contentment and happiness for the giver, for ourselves, and also recognize that it's actually doing just that, is taking our concern for the ego satisfaction away and puts our concern on the assistance and helpfulness towards others, we will recognize that this is a pathway which can help us to see reality. The Buddha explained generosity in many different ways. In the first instance, he divided it into three parts. The generosity of a beggar, of a friend, and of a king. The generosity of a beggar is the generosity of a person who gives away what they don't want anyway. Like, um, I suppose you have a Salvation Army in this country, or Smith family, or something like that, where you give your old sweaters to, because you don't want them anymore. Well, it's better than nothing, but it isn't the kind of generosity that helps one to reduce one's ego satisfaction, a search for ego satisfaction. It's mostly geared towards emptying the cupboards to put something new in. <laughs> that can be considered to be the generosity of a beggar. And then there's the generosity of a friend. A friend is one who shares. So if we have, we share with others. Now there are many things that we can have. They don't necessarily have to be money, although that is an important thing to share 
because it's considered to be important. Everybody puts value on it because we do need it to buy our necessities for life. If we had a barter society, then of course the things would be more important. But at the moment, the society we have is based upon the barter system for which we get paid. For sharing our money, our wealth, our, the, the, um, our capacity to purchase with others is very important because it helps us to have a lessening of fear. Most of our hanging on and trying to keep is, if not all of it, is based on fear. The fear of insecurity, that we're not going to have enough now or when we're sick or when we're old or when the uh, economy uh, gets worse or when we lose our job. The fear of that insecurity for that ego person, that me person. Because we consider this a solid entity, this one here, we consider also that we have to look after it and make sure that nothing or as little as possible happens to it. Of course, we can't make sure. But by the simple fact that the biggest buildings in most capital cities are the insurance companies, we can see how we act upon our fear. Many people buy insurance policies for all sorts of things. They try to insure their life, life insurances. The absurdity of that sentence needs no explanation. We can have much better, and I think such things can also be bought, probably, death insurance. That's for sure. That we can insure. So we have great fears for insecurity. And because of that, we try to amass things around us. To a certain extent, whatever we are able to get whether we are able to get many things, big houses, small houses, flats, cars, pictures, whatever it may be. All of these things that we put around us give us an illusion of actually being somebody because we don't then just own our body and mind, we actually own pictures and furniture and houses and cars and refrigerators and uh, whatever else we can think of or can afford to get. So the more we own, and this is not an intellectual process, it is actually something which occurs because of our mental direction. The more we own, the more we feel that this ego has 
a basis to rest upon because it appears to have enlarged itself. This is another reason why we think we own our children. It's an enlargement of ourselves. It's an absurdity. Everybody knows it's an absurdity. But the intellectual knowing hasn't really helped at all. It's that feeling that we get from all this ownership. It seems to support the foundation for this ego illusion. The bigger the foundation, the more there is, the easier it is to rest upon it. That's why people hang on to the most um, innocuous things which nobody really wants and they think they're very wonderful because they're theirs. They own them. So they have a value only to them. It's this um, value which we put that we call sentimental value because it enlarges our foundation for this ego illusion. And in society, nobody would accept such a thing because one considers sentimental value something valuable. So if we actually take this path seriously, we have to take it seriously that we are operating under an illusion which constantly creates problems for us. Our ego illusion is public and private enemy number one. There is no other. We can put it into that small a nutshell. And whether we have, we actually believe it or not, doesn't really matter and whether we've found it out ourselves yet or not. But what does matter is that we have seen the problems. And then have enough confidence to act upon some of the instructions to reduce the problems. So giving is one of the methods just as meditation and concentration is one of the methods. It cannot stand alone. Meditation with a heart and a mind which constantly says, I want to be a good meditator, isn't going to work. It's got to be a letting go process. Generosity is a letting go process. So we can give away money. We can give away things. Because we can look at our cupboards and, and our rooms and, uh, and our shelves. And if we come home, it mightn't be a bad idea to take a good look and actually recognize the enormity of diversity which has accumulated on those shelves and in those cupboards. Nature operates with papancha. Papancha means diversity and proliferation. We know there are hundreds and hundreds of species of one tree. In Australia, the most um, prolific tree is the eucalypt, eucalyptus tree. It has 300 and 64 species, one tree. 
I was told by a gardener that begonias have almost 400 species. At one time, many, many years ago, I had this deluded idea I was going to collect begonias. But when I heard about almost 400 species, I luckily gave it up immediately. That's nature. Nature does that. And we, as part of nature, do exactly the same thing. People collect matchboxes. Pewter. Uh, little verses. Um, matchbox cars. Anything. Anything to make the base on which this ego rests a little bigger. Stamps, that's a famous one. Big stamp collections. So when we look at our shelves and our cupboards and our houses, we might actually notice, maybe for the first time in years, that the place is crammed full with stuff. And we might have a look at it and see that two-thirds of it is not being used. It wouldn't be uncommon. And if we see that, we might actually start to think whether we really have to keep all that stuff. Now, some people have already come to that conclusion and have divested themselves of a lot of those things. But some people haven't even started to think about it yet. No matter where we're at, if we have already divested ourselves, then the rooms will look nicely empty. There'll be lots of space. Just like in our mind, if it's nicely empty, there could be lots of space to fill it with that which is worthwhile. So with the rooms, the same thing. Things and money. But we have other things to give away. One of the things we can give away are our skills. Share them with others. Our time. this totally absurd quotation that I think was invented in America, that time is money, is uh, a complete delusion. We make it that. We make it that because we want to get paid by the hour or something like that. But time, in essence, is forever. It has no limitation. We put the limitations on because we have to meet at a certain time. So we say 11 o'clock. But that's man-made. That's not real. So if we can give time to others, being concerned about their well-being, helping them in some manner, helping them paint their house or something like that, or listening to them. Listening is an art which has become somewhat tarnished in our time because of the fact that we are bombarded by the media and we don't listen to each other anymore. We haven't got the time. We have lost, actually, the understanding that listening to another person might be the most important thing the other one needs 
and the most important thing that we need in order to learn to reduce our ego concern. When we listen, actually actively listen, not just sit there, but actively listen to another person, we can't think about ourselves. We have to listen to the other one. So we are giving them our full attention. We may not be able to say anything profound. That's quite all right. The other person might just need someone to listen to them. This is something which in our society today, especially in the Western society, has become very neglected. And we find that also a great detriment to family life. Family life works much better when people listen to each other. It may not be anything extremely important. It may just be the necessity for communication. Because we're not enlightened, we do feel this separation from each other. Communication is one way of bridging that separation. Whether anything very deep and stirring needs to be said is really not the point in this case. It's an act of love to listen to another person. So our generosity extends to our time, our things, our money, and our love. Loving another is generosity. It's a giving of the heart. If we can't give, then we can't give love either. It's possibly difficult because of the fact that we have this feeling of insecurity. Is the other one going to accept my love? Does he really want it or she want it? Are they going to reject my love? Do they really want my time? Do they really want me to listen to them? Am I clever enough? Am I wonderful enough to love them? These are all considerations which are concerned with ego and they are based on the idea that we're less than another. But that is still ego. There's a story about some monks in the Buddha's time. These monks were taking a walk in the forest. And as they were walking along in the forest, some bandits came and demanded money from them. Well, the monks didn't carry any money. So the head monk said, we haven't got any. So the head bandit said, okay, I'll take one of you as um, um, with me. So then when you want him back, you'll have to pay a certain ransom. But you can choose which one I'll take, he said to the head monk. And the head monk didn't answer. And after a while, the head bandit became very impatient and said, why don't you tell me which one I should take? If you don't tell me, I'll just take you. And then the head monk said, well, if I tell you to take another one, 
that means that that other one is less important than I am. If I tell you to take me, that means I'm less important than the others. But since there's no such thing as less and more, there's nobody really here. Well, the bandit was so stunned by this answer that he just wandered off. (laughs) So no ransom at all. And this is our explanation for sometimes feeling that, oh, I don't really have such a big ego because I think everybody else is better than me. But that's not the case. It's still me that's less than the others. Whether I think I'm more or less is not the point of the ego concern. Usually the people who don't feel so strongly about being better are a little easier to live with, but there's still the same ego concern. So our concern whether we are wonderful enough to love another, whether they want our love or not, whether they want our time, whether they want our attention, has absolutely no business in our act and our practice, our training for generosity. Generosity is giving ourselves, and if somebody doesn't want us, they'll let us know very quickly. That's fine. It has nothing to do with our training. We're training our own heart. We're not training somebody else to want us. Generosity has to be done without the expectation of gratitude. Because if we expect gratitude, first of all, we're going to be disappointed. And secondly, we are still in the marketplace. We're giving in order to get at least gratitude, if nothing else. So that marketplace mentality will have to be substituted with the understanding that we are actually training and training ourselves and cultivating these virtues for the simple reason that we want to purify ourselves. Now, if somebody is grateful to us, that's to their advantage. That's strictly to the person's advantage who is grateful has nothing to do with the training of our generosity. In fact, the Buddha said that there are three rarities in the world. One is that a Buddha arises, that the person can do a kindness, and that another one will be grateful for it. And the third rarity is the teaching of the true Dhamma. So you can see that being grateful is put on the same level as the arising of a Buddha. So if we do something nice and somebody else isn't grateful, that's just the way it is. It has nothing to do with the goodness of our gift. It has nothing to do with the um, uh, training we are doing. It's just the fact that people have a hard time being grateful. Now, in polite society, people say thank you. In fact, we teach the children 
from the time they can talk that they've got to say please and thank you. So they say like little parrots, please and thank you. And we keep on saying like little parrots, please and thank you. It's all right, it makes a better better connection. We don't uh, rub each other too much. But gratitude is something entirely different. Gratitude is a giving of the heart. So the person who is grateful is also giving out of generosity of the heart. Generosity extends to all our actions in life. For instance, in our job. We have work to do in our job for which we get paid. And many people just do that work for that reason and try to get away with as little of it as possible because the paycheck's going to remain the same. And if somebody in their office or in their place of work asks them to do something else, they don't want to because they think they're doing enough for that measly paycheck. But that's not the way to enjoy or to train oneself and it's not the way to have each day when one goes to work the kind of feeling that one is actually on a spiritual path because one's own work can be a spiritual path if we go to work with the idea of being generous to others of being a person that is helpful to others of being a kind of catalyst for a spiritual mentality and a spiritual environment in any workplace. It doesn't matter where. Somebody has to be the catalyst. Most people only go there in order to get their money, naturally. That's considered to be the way it is. It doesn't have to be. It can become a place where people actually strive to serve either the public that comes there, if that is the case, or to serve each other, to help each other, each person who comes to that workplace. And that's a guarantee, has dukkha. It's universal. There isn't a single person that hasn't got it. Some people deny it, but that doesn't mean they haven't got it. In fact, it's probably quite hurtful to them to deny it. It's much more relieving, relieving and relaxing if one can admit it. So in that, with that in mind, we can already see that if we go to this workplace, whatever it may be, where we probably go five or six times in the week from morning to afternoon, if we go there with that in mind, that this too is our spiritual path, that this too is our training ground, then we're using it in the proper way and we're using it for the benefit of ourselves and others. And we will soon see that the whole atmosphere of the place has changed because people are very easy to influence. They're more easily influenced mm -hmm. towards the bad, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But 
if one is persistent enough, they can also be influenced towards the good. And most people do have a yearning, not everybody, but most, have a yearning for the good. They just don't know how to get at it. All the things they've heard as children, they've rejected by now because they didn't think it worked for the people who told them, which is a natural reaction. We've probably all gone through that. But that doesn't mean that there isn't something good to be done. The Buddha said to his monks, if it wasn't possible to do only the good, I wouldn't ask you to do so. It is possible. So if we go with that um, attitude in mind to all the things that we uh, have responsibilities and duties for in our daily life, we have that attitude in mind that that too is our spiritual path, that that too can be treated with generosity and love, that that too can be beneficial for ourselves in our own training and thereby possibly help others, we are acting in a spiritual way. Now, if we expect that the other people in our workplace will, after two or three days, say to us, oh, you're so nice. I think I'm going to be nice too now. <laughs> We're going to be disappointed. It doesn't work that way. It's a subtle and slow process. And it works actually insidiously. It's very easy to see with people who take this path seriously and go to a lot of meditation courses. If they actually take it seriously, go to a lot of meditation courses and then also work on themselves outside of the meditation course, they change, guaranteed, but in such a way that they themselves are sometimes not aware of it. Because we are so used to the way we are now that then when we change and it does work slowly we get so used to the way we are then that we can hardly remember how we used to be and therefore on the spiritual path it's also a good idea first of all to keep what I call a spiritual diary it's very interesting if we write in it for instance something that upsets us we're totally upset by something somebody said at work or somebody said in the family or did something. And we write that in there. <coughs> and we write all our reactions. And then keep on writing things like that. And also, of course, the good things, not just the negative ones. <coughs> and then we open this maybe two or three years later. The first thing that's going to strike us is that it's absolutely absurd what we were upset about because it's completely forgotten and two or three years later that what we were upset about wouldn't even touch us and therefore we can actually see that we have been practicing it's a great support system because we can't very well ask the people in our family haven't I changed or uh, don't you think I'm much uh, more loving now it, it's, it's not really a, a really a conducive to good relationship. <laughs> they might even think we're a bit funny. And that's the last thing we want them to think. <laughs> but 
if we write it down quite honestly in this diary, quite honest things that upset us or quite honest things which we can relate and react to, and then read that two years later, we will see that something has happened and we get a good laugh about the things that we had written in there which we found so important at the time and we may just slightly remember having been upset at that time but we couldn't possibly be upset now it's a very helpful way of recognizing that one is actually practicing or vice versa recognizing that one isn't practicing because if one reads it and recognizes that the same thing still upset one then one knows one hasn't practiced so in both ways it's helpful it's like holding up a mirror to one's own inner being so I have um, often uh, recommended that and um, I used to do it for years and uh, actually got quite a number of good laughs out of it seeing it after some years and thinking well this is absolutely ridiculous generosity also means very strongly the honesty and this is another one of the ten virtues and they all work together the first one is called dana in Pali and honesty truthfulness is satcha S-A-C-C-A Generosity has to come from an honest wanting to give oneself. It mustn't be this superficial do-gooding. That is not conducive to spiritual growth. Although it's better than do-bedding, of course, it still doesn't have the right effect because it is an ego support look at me how good I am it doesn't work it has to come from that honest place in oneself where one recognizes totality of existence universality of dukkha this fear for oneself when one recognizes all those and wants to overcome the separation with feeling threatened and being separated and wants to purify the heart to the point where it has that feeling within there's nothing to hide there is nothing to take back it's all just totally open to everyone and to the world it means an emptying out and this is what I was saying first about the house empty out the house they're all too crammed full and then empty out the heart and give it away the more we give away of love of time of um, concern of attention the more we give away of all that the more we've got and the very interesting aspect of that is the fact that this works also on the material plane 
and hardly anybody wants to believe it. The more we give away, the more we've got. It is the same on the spiritual, mental, emotional plane, the same works on the material plane. In fact, the material plane is nothing but a reflection of the spiritual plane. We are just a reflection of that. We're all here as human beings because we wanted to be. Now that we don't remember, that has nothing to do with it. We couldn't possibly be human beings and be here if we hadn't wanted this being, this existence. So we are a reflection of that craving. The same way our generosity on the material plane will have the same reflection towards us. People don't believe it. They think they have to keep their things in order to have them. In actuality, we've got to give them away. It's worth trying. It takes a little bit of courage. It's like jumping into the swimming pool from the 10-meter board. It mm -hmm. takes a bit of courage. We don't know whether we're going to land well or have a splash. But if we try it, it's, we can see it does work. Honesty, truthfulness, which is another one of those ten virtues, works together with all the rest of them because it means truthfulness to oneself about oneself. It naturally includes truthfulness to others not lying but why do we lie and we have those famous little white lies which are supposed to keep polite society running I don't even not so sure whether polite society should be kept running but I'm not going to think about that right now little white lies are lies whether they're white green black or red doesn't matter and whether they're little or big, they are an untruth. And why do we say them? Because most of the time, we want to hide behind them. We don't want to show our true face because we don't like our true face. Actually, none of us know our true face. We all have put on a persona, a mask. And with that mask, we believe that to be our true face. And the less we believe that, the more we become honest to ourselves and others, the more that mask crumbles. The mask is, consists of our opinions about ourselves, whether they're good or bad. The mask consists of all our accumulated habits, our accumulated ideas, and all that which we have put on and now call it me. It wasn't there when we were in that photo album on the little bearskin bear, bear rug. We didn't have that persona yet. We've been putting it on little by little, step after step, until now we've got one <laughs> which is quite massive. Some people have it so strongly that you can't get through it. 
they don't want to know the truth they're afraid that it may be very hurtful and so they um, have put on an armor and the armor is all around it's around mind and body so it takes a great deal of self-honesty to look at all that accumulation and see which one of that has any depth to it, any profundity, any reality. And it has to be connected with feeling. In order to have depth and reality, it has to be feeling. So if we are have a hard time understanding or recognizing our own feelings, we need more self-honesty. Honesty is a prerequisite for the spiritual path. Because if we are not honest enough to, to admit our dissatisfaction with the world and ourselves, we wouldn't practice. So anybody who starts practicing has already got that much honesty. Because otherwise we would still be probably going to parties or um, at the moment probably watching television rather than sitting here. So it is already that much honesty. That much honesty means something needs to be done and there is a way to do it. But we have to continue with that honesty about ourselves. And again, that spiritual diary helps. Not putting oneself down. Not admiring oneself honestly writing down the way it is. It is the pathway of introspection, the pathway of mindfulness. It's a pathway of objectivity. Truthfulness will include that we know our negativities, but also our strength. We have to know both because the strength we have, all those things which we are actually good at, will help us on the spiritual path. It's not an easy path. It's not geared towards sensual gratification. So we need all the things that we are already good at Maybe we're good at analysis. Maybe we're good at loving. Maybe we're like to help. Maybe we're good at concentration. Whatever it is that we're actually good at, that will have to be our support system. So it's no use just seeing all the negativities. Truthfulness means seeing both and using our strengths in order to overcome our weaknesses. We are born with the six roots, which I've already mentioned. I'll mention them again. They're the three, three roots of evil and the three roots of good. The three roots of evil, delusion, which is our ego delusion, which brings about the other two, hate and greed. We hate 
what does not support the ego illusion and delusion and we want to keep that which supports it. And the opposite is our loving ability and our generosity. They too, the two counteract hating greed. And all the wisdom that we have already within us where we can recognize truth when we either hear it, read it, or experience it. That is wisdom, to recognize what is true. What will be of value to us? Now that isn't the final wisdom yet, but then this is a training path. This is not a pathway which has to have an immediate result. This is a journey. And if we don't enjoy every step on that journey, we're definitely not going to stay on it. And most people, unfortunately, don't because they're not enjoying it. This journey is not concerned with the final destination. The final destination is only mentioned just to let people know that there is such a thing. But what is important is the journey itself. Now if we take a journey, let's say from here to France, and all we are concerned with is that we should arrive in Paris, we're not going to enjoy one minute of it. Because all the time we're thinking, I want to be in Paris. That's supposed to be the wonderful city. I want to get there. Why isn't it faster? Why does it take so long? There's not going to be any enjoyment in the journey. But if we really want to take a nice trip, we need to enjoy every step on the way. The enjoyment comes from the fact that we get an inner conviction that this is the right journey. This is the one which is most important to take. And that inner conviction builds up the buoyancy on which the mind can operate. Because mind energy is another one of the virtues. Energy, strictly mental energy, is very important factor in all endeavors that we have. If we don't have any energy to do it, we won't do it. But here, specifically so, because concentration needs energy, insight needs energy. Energy is one of the seven factors of enlightenment. It's one of the five spiritual faculties. And without it, we fall into dullness. Although it doesn't sound like the opposite of energy, it is in experience the opposite. The dull mind, the mind that doesn't want to exert itself. It can have self-satisfaction as its cause for that but it can just have laziness as its cause. And as you've already heard, laziness is our third hindrance. So energy is one of the virtues which we need to develop. And the energy which we develop rests on the understanding, confidence and joy in the path which brings us 
moment-to-moment happiness. Generosity brings us an immediate return. It's a karmic action which has immediate result. We don't have to wait for gratitude. We don't have to wait for the result that somebody else is going to give us something, which we might think would be the result of generosity. No, we have an immediate result, namely our own inner contentment. It's very simple to feel contented after having been generous. Generosity, truthfulness and energy are three of those uh, virtues. There's something else to be said about generosity. The Buddha said a lot about it because it is such an important thing in order to reduce the ego concentration, the ego concern, ego delusion. He said, the purity of the receiver purifies the gift. Now how do we understand that? It means that we should use generosity with some wisdom. We should give where the gift will produce goodness. Sometimes there are people who need help. Let's say a person is down and out, lying in the gutter, having an empty wine bottle next to him, and asks you for some money. Well, you'll feel probably very compassionate towards that person. But if you give him money, you can be rest assured, and you know already, it's going to go for another wine bottle. That's not wise generosity. In that case, one should, if one wants to help that person, one should try to find a shelter for that person, not give him money. But if you know about an orphanage where children are taken in who have no parents or who have been abused by parents and who are being treated well in that orphanage, you give some money to that orphanage, you know it's being used for goodness. So we need to discriminate what and where we give. Obviously, if we want to help a person who's down and out in the gutter, that's also generosity, but not with money. So the purity of the receiver purifies the gift. In other words, the gift which is being used for goodness, of course, becomes pure. And there you can see that money as such is not impure. It's just what people do with it. Money as such is just a right. We often have nowadays this idea that um, money is something bad about it and it's uh, difficult and it's uh, obstructive and all the rest of it. It's not at all. It's, a, it's paper and metal for barter. But what people do with it, that of course can often be bad. So we can remember the Buddha's words about the different stages of generosity. Now, generosity, like a king, that would be a person 
who gives away more than they would keep. These people are very rare and often become quite famous because they are so rare. I would say that, for instance, Mother Teresa of Calcutta would be an example. She has given herself completely to others. And she has given herself completely to the helping, helping and assisting people who are completely down and out. So she's become very famous, got the Nobel Prize for it, which is nice. It's very rare. Most people can barely manage the generosity of a friend. That too is difficult already. And if we aspire to that, we're doing well. But if we do practice generosity, it becomes very habitual. We are looking for places where we can give. And in the Buddhist countries and the Buddhist traditions, if one gives to temples or monks or nuns or spiritual centers or some spiritual endeavor, stupas or such things, monasteries, the giver thanks the receiver. Thanks the receiver for giving them the opportunity to make good karma. And it is, therefore, in, for instance, Sri Lanka, where I have lived for the past ten years, the custom that a monk or a nun do not thank anybody when they get anything. Well, having been brought up in the West, I've never been able to abide by that. The word thank you come out absolutely compulsively. <laughs> but that is the way the tradition goes because the one who gives is the one who thanks. Which is a nice way of thinking, even though I personally wasn't able to um, go along with the non-speaking of it. It's still a very nice way of thinking because the one who is generous is the one who is thinking, I am now actually having a great opportunity. Now, in the East, in the Buddhist countries, generosity is practiced with the idea of making good karma, which is still a little bit on the marketplace mentality. Because I'm giving, so I want to get good karma for it. It's certainly much better than not giving. And it's certainly much better than waiting for gratitude. And it's certainly much better than waiting to get something back. But it's still on that level. So eventually, and it's quite all right to start with that. I'm making good karma. Eventually, that attitude also has to um, vanish. I'm giving for no other reason than that whatever I have is on loan. 
and I might as well share it. The Buddha said, we only need four requisites. Food, clothing, a roof over our heads, and medicine when sick. He didn't exactly say how much of each. But he meant, naturally, the bare minimum. So whatever else we have and whatever else we would like to have are not needs, they're wants. And we find it very difficult to distinguish between need and want. It's a very good practice to learn to distinguish what's a need and what's a want. We very often use the word need where we should be saying want. Generosity, which is the first of these ten, is followed immediately by moral conduct, which I will talk about separately because it's quite a long subject. And the next one after that, the third one, is renunciation. Now the word renunciation in most people's minds brings up the idea of living in a cave or being a nun or a monk or being a hermit in the Himalayas or whatever else one has considered to be renunciation. That's not what it means. Not at all. Renunciation is again geared towards lessening the ego illusion by renouncing some of the ego support systems, but only when we recognize them to be such. It is not useful or practical or even helpful to try to do without something without knowing why. Now, for instance, if we smoke, if we're a smoker, and we want to give it up, without knowing that it's bad for our health, we're not going to give it up. But if we know it's bad for our health, at least we have an incentive. And it will be possible to give it up. That's renunciation. Now, of course, it goes much further on the spiritual path. If we know why we're doing it, we will be giving up certain things. In meditation, renunciation is absolutely essential. We can't meditate without it. We have to renounce thinking. We have to renounce physical comfort. We have to renounce papancha, proliferation. We have to renounce being entertained. We have to renounce having distraction. We have to let go of all of that. Now, these are spiritual renunciations. Once having done that in meditation long enough to become concentrated and to reap the benefits of that, 
we will be able to do the same renunciation in daily life. We do not need distractions. We do not need proliferation. We do not need all the things which we think make our lives more pleasant. They are only taking us away from the reality of the truthfulness of recognizing who we really are. That's all they do. They are our constant aim to minimize dukkha because we haven't learned yet to deal with dukkha properly. All distractions, all entertainments, all the things that we can occupy the mind with, all our media, they are all ways and means of trying to run away from dukkha. Once we have seen that it doesn't help because the minute the TV is finished or the newspaper is read or the film is over, the dukkha is right back where it started from. It hasn't diminished at all. It's just been not recognized for a while. The renunciation which we practice in meditation can therefore be extended into daily life little by little. It doesn't mean that we don't read any books. It just means that we read the right kind of books. And it means that we fill our mind with that which will be uplifting, not distracting, not entertaining, but uplifting and elevating and instructive and arousing the mind to the spiritual truth. So we make choices. We're renouncing one thing for the benefit of another. And that is actually the most important aspect of renunciation, which also goes together, renunciation, with generosity, because when we renounce owning something and give it away, that's also renunciation. In other words, we are trying to get back to basic understanding of our own existence without all the <coughs> external proliferations and external extras which we put around our existence in order to make it seem more secure. All of the rules that the Buddha put down for nuns and monks are for that one purpose only. To um, let go of the externals which are supportive of the ego base. When it is imposed as a... Um, compulsion, it produces, of course, the opposite, rejection. It always does. There's no way it cannot do that. It has to come through the meditation practice and one's own understanding. And as much of it as there is, that much one can renounce, little by little. Many drops fill a bucket. 
and they do if we keep doing it. I will mention the other virtues to you just so that you have an um, information about them. It's too much to talk about all of them. There's determination, which I've mentioned in connection with meditation many times. We have to be determined to do it. The human being is by nature one who is looking for sensual satisfaction. We are living in what is called the karma loka, not karma, but karma, K-A-M-A, loka. Loka is location. Pali, Sanskrit have many equivalents in our um, European languages, especially the Celtic languages. Location. And karma is desire and particularly used for sexual desire because it's the strongest one but not um, exclusively so because our desires are the desire to be the desire not to be and the desire for sensual gratification so we do need determination to counteract this constant disturbance it's a constant disturbance that we have, particularly the sensual desire, because we don't see anything wrong in it. And it's nothing wrong with it. It's not wrong. It's natural. But the spiritual path takes us to the super-mundane, that which is beyond natural. So to be absolutely natural, we just remain the way we are. That's natural. But if we want something greater, if we want something less full of dukkha, we have to transcend. So there's nothing wrong with sensual desire and sensual gratification if we want to remain the way we are. If we don't, we need determination, willpower, strong willpower to keep on practicing and as I said before we renounce as much as we have already understood and practiced in meditation that much we can renounce energy I've already mentioned truthfulness I've already mentioned patience patience is also an ego reduction. If I'm impatient, I want things my way and I want them now. Most people have limits to their patience. Some people have l further limits than others. But to be abs absolutely patient, totally patient, that's only the enlightened one, the Arahant. But when we become impatient, we can watch that. It's not uh, conducive to our own happiness. On the contrary, we start thinking negatively about whoever or whatever is making us impatient. There's something happening that's making us impatient. So obviously that must be at fault. Otherwise we wouldn't be impatient. But that's not true. We are impatient because we haven't perfected our patience. That's all there is to it. 
and our impatience just shows us that our ego is raising its ugly head, that's all. There's no need to worry or blame. There's only the need to recognize. Impatience is nothing but the fact that we haven't perfected patience. Patience goes together in the teaching with endurance, being able to endure. Now, one thing that we learn to endure is physical discomfort in meditation. No compulsion is useless to um, push oneself if one hasn't learned it yet. It, again, brings nothing but rejection. But eventually we become more and more patient and therefore more and more enduring. Now, endurance is a quality which we need in daily life. I've always admired, I must say, the English people who patiently stand in queues where in other countries people don't even dream of standing in queues. They're elbowing their way to the front and try to get in all at once into the bus or wherever it is. So there is a certain quality of endurance that goes together with patience, which some people have more than others. And it is a quality of acceptance. If there is anger with the patience or with the waiting or the endurance, then it isn't working. If one is standing there patiently in the rain, waiting to get on the bus and all the time the mind is churning over why don't they put in more buses it's ridiculous or why don't they put a roof over this thing here and where are all these people going anyway then it isn't working it's only working when one's actually standing patiently enduring the discomfort the two things are spiritual qualities and as you can see everybody has some of all these qualities we've all been generous in the past and know what it feels like. We've all had some patience and endurance. We've all been truthful at times, maybe not all the time, but at times. We've all renounced something or other because we realized we really didn't have to have it. And so we know what all these, that we all have these qualities. It's a matter of cultivating them and recognizing them for what they are. They are our friends and co-workers. They help us to keep on an even keel, on a foundation of goodness, which then from where we can proceed to actualize this um, investigation into absolute truth, which otherwise, without that foundation, would shock us so much that we wouldn't want to know about it when we see it. Wisdom is one of the um, uh, ten virtues. And wisdom goes to, is uh, equivalent to insight. In Pali it's Panya, but it is equivalent to Vipassana, insight. And it arises also little by little. We mustn't think that we get it all in one heap 
like a golden mantle descending upon us and then we are wise it isn't that way at all it's little by little step by step through cultivating goodness and substituting that which is detrimental to us and as we watch ourselves clearly and look inside and maybe even write it down wisdom arises wisdom is the understood experience it's actually as simple as that if we understand what we're experiencing but understand it from a standpoint of objectivity and not from a standpoint of its mind we objectively look at the experience and then understand it then we gain wisdom wisdom is also one of the five spiritual qualities and faculties which i might uh, discuss uh, at another time because they are also an important aspect of our whole um, pathway and then there is love and equanimity as the virtues now those two have already discussed with you as two of the four brahma viharas the four divine abodes so you see that they are of great importance because they reappear here again and the buddha did repeat his instructions many times because it's very difficult to remember as you may have already noticed and it's not only difficult to remember it's also difficult to make the connection the whole of the teaching in the beginning appears to be like a jigsaw puzzle now all these little pu- little bits and pieces so i'm supposed to be wise huh? how do i do that and i'm supposed to have energy and i'm supposed to have generosity and i'm supposed to do this and i'm supposed to do that and it all seems to be one little piece here and a little piece there and it all seems to be quite overwhelming to do all these things i'm going to have time for all that <laughs> but in the long run you will find that all these bits and pieces make one great mosaic with one picture that's all it is they all fit together perfectly and that's why the buddha explained these different little bits and pieces from different angles at different times and we find them over and over again that's enough about our virtues if you have some questions you can ask them Don't go around in circles again. <laughs> Bhava tanha, the desire to be. <laughs> You're never going to figure it out that way. You've tried long enough already. You can't figure it out that way. You'll have to take it for granted that the mind will has other levels of understanding than the one that is that i call the pedestrian one it does have it the mind has other levels and on those other levels those things are 
quite simple and have no difficulty with them. But on the ordinary level, where it's either white or black, good or bad, yours or mine, tomorrow or yesterday, where you buy it or sell it, where you get something or you lose something, on that level it doesn't work. I have to get to that level where you see it in like a bird's eye view. You look from here and look down and say, aha. You see, like Apollo 17 uh, photographed this earth. Well, we didn't know what it looked like, did we? I mean, we're living on it. We're sitting on it. I mean, if somebody were to ask me whether I experience that this earth is constantly moving around the sun, I would say no. In fact, I'd be afraid to fall off. I don't experience that this thing is moving. It's, it's, it's stationary as far as I'm concerned. And yet I'm, I'm, a, I'm a participant in it. But then they went up there and they took a photograph and you could see, aha, that's what it's like. <clears throat> the same with the mind. It reaches a little higher level of understanding and it looks and says, aha. <laughs> what else? Yes? When you concentrate on the breathing and use the counting method, why is it important not to go beyond ten? Do more than five, but less than ten? Well, there are two things. One is because it becomes very mechanical. It even can become mechanical to ten. Some people only count to five because you know your numbers, you know, from way back, and you go on 11, 12, 13, 14, and all of a sudden you're at 40, and, <laughs> and you don't even know how you got there. So that's actually the greatest danger. And the other thing is also that if you always make yourself come back to one, and you could very well do it only till five, it also counteracts that tendency to become mechanical because you have to pull yourself back. So that's the most important aspect of it, that um, the, uh, this kind of tendency to just keep going and not knowing where one is. Some people do count further. I have... Actually, I don't think I've met anyone who was very successful. Yes, maybe one or two people who found that successful. Most people find it better to go only to five. But uh, it's a traditional way of saying go to ten and no further. Are you having problems with that? With that ten? No. You just wanted to know why. Okay. Hmm? Okay, what else? When you do meditation, it's all right to do a number of reflections and then follow that by meditation afterwards, or should it be kept separate? No, the other way around. First, you do your meditation to become concentrated, right? And then, if that in that same period there's still time and your concentration is now gone, then it's very helpful to do a contemplation. The contemplation needs a concentrated mind. So always first concentration and then contemplation. What do you mean by some of those reflections? You know, like five subjects of frequent recollection, something like that. That's right. That's a contemplation. That's a contemplation. The five daily recollections. Yes. First, do concentration. 
first go on the breath and try to become as concentrated as you can and stay with that for a while and then go to that to the five daily recollections right anything else When nobody has a question, I'm always wondering whether it's all totally muddled or whether it is actually so clear that it doesn't need any any further discussion. So I hope it's all perfectly clear. Huh? Hmm?